Okay, uh, good evening everyone and welcome. Uh, my name is Stan Allen, I'm Dean of the School of Architecture and it's my great pleasure and honor tonight to be able to welcome Kenneth Jackson to Princeton. Uh, the title of his lecture tonight is If All the World Were New Jersey, The Past and Future of the Garden State. And in, indeed, for those of us who pay close attention to cities across the globe, there are moments where it does seem as if more and more of the world is beginning to resemble New Jersey. Uh, and I say that in full awareness that that may seem like something of a nightmare to some people. Um, the, the idea that the state that gave us toxic waste dumps, suburban sprawl, and the Sopranos would be a model for global urban development. Uh, like many New Yorkers, uh, for years my idea of New Jersey was, was the post-industrial landscape uh, that unfolds at 60 miles an hour alongside the New Jersey Turnpike. But New Jersey, for those who take the time to get off the freeway and look carefully, is a place that is really much more interesting, complex, and contradictory uh, than that uh, simple stereotype. So we look forward to Professor Jackson's perspective tonight, and we appreciate his willingness to, uh, to take seriously our sometimes beleaguered state. Now, New Jersey may seem like an unlikely topic for an historian who is so closely associated with New York City. Professor Jackson edited the monumental, that is, 1,373-page uh, long Encyclopedia of New York City, which was published in 1995 by Yale University Press. Assisted by two managing editors, two deputy managing editors, 68 associate editors, 25 project editors, and almost 700 individual authors, he worked for 13 years to create the first major reference tool for the great metropolis in almost a century. According to the New York Times, no one with even a passing interest in New York will be able to live without it. I know my own copy is well-thumbed. He has, however, always taken a broad view of the process of urbanization, which inevitably includes the relationship between the city and its region. My first introduction to his work was the seminal book, Crabgrass Frontier, published in 1985, which carried the subtitle, the suburbanization of the United States. Jackson's analysis of the transformation of American urban space and society remains among the most cogent, informative, and readable accounts of a phenomenon that still, 20 years on, is an urgent issue for architects, planners, historians, and policymakers. Now, just to give you a little bit of the background, uh, Kenneth Jackson is director of the Herbert H. Lehman Center for the Study of American History and the Jacques Balzan Professor of History and Social Sciences at Columbia University. He is a graduate of the University of Memphis and the University of Chicago. He served for three years as an officer of the United States Air Force before joining the Columbia faculty as an assistant professor in 1968. Promoted to associate professor in 1971, to full professor in 1976, and to the Andrew W. Mellon professorship in 1987, he assumed the Balzan professorship which honors one of, the most, one of the nation's most distinguished men of letters in 1990. In addition to the Encyclopedia of New York City and to Crabgrass Frontier, his other books include The Ku Klux Klan in the City, The Atlas of American History, Cities in American History with Stanley Schultz, and American Vistas with Leonard Dinnerstein. His latest book, written in collaboration with David Dunbar, is Empire City, New York Throughout the Centuries. 
he's also the co-author with the photographer Camilo Vergara of Silent Cities, the Evolution of the American Cemetery. In collaboration with Vergara, Jackson has created two important public exhibitions. He has lectured extensively at hundreds of colleges and universities, civic groups, and historical societies around the world. He's been featured in broadcast television, uh, in public television, uh, and has been involved in more than 40 documentary productions. He's been recognized, of course, with numerous grants, awards, and fellowships, and has received honorary doctorates from the City University of New York, St. Peter's College, the State University of New York, and the University of the South. At Columbia, he teaches courses in urban, social, and military history, and can often be found at the gymnasium playing basketball with the students. In 1989, the students of the college honored him as Teacher of the Year and gave him their 28th uh, annual Mark Van Doren Award for Humanity, Devotion to Truth, and Inspiring Leadership. In 1993, Playboy magazine named him as one of the most popular professors in the nation. There's an honor we, we want. Uh, in 1999, the Society of Columbia Graduates chose Professor Jackson for its annual Great Teacher Award, and in 2001, the New York Council for the Humanities selected him as the New York State Scholar of the Year. Professor Jackson is, first of all, a New Yorker. Uh, he's at home in the subways, the back streets, and the gritty neighborhoods of New York City, where he has been leading all-night bicycle rides, three-hour walking tours, and, and all-day bus trips for decades. Tonight, Professor Jackson will deliver this year's Stafford Little Lecture, sponsored by a gift given in 19, uh, sorry, 1889 by Henry Stafford Little, of the class of 1844. A lawyer by profession, Little was active in New Jersey politics and was the first president of the New York and Long Branch Railroad Company. He was devoted to Princeton and on the occasion of his original donation, he suggested that Grover Cleveland, ex-president of the United States, be invited to deliver before the students of the university, quote, such lectures as he might be disposed to give from year to year. Grover Cleveland was the Stafford Little Lecturer until his death in 1908. Between 1954 and 1955 and 1970 and 1971, the Committee on Public Lectures expressed an intent to use this fund to address topics in the general area of social studies. Previous lecturers have included Theodore Roosevelt, Albert Einstein, Henry L. Stimson, Arnold Schoenberg, and Thurgood Marshall. We're very pleased to welcome Kenneth Jackson tonight into this distinguished company. Uh, it's an honor and pleasure to be the Stafford Little Lecturer this evening to to be recognized by this great university and to be part of the list of speakers that were just given to you. The circumstances remind me of the comment of Justice William J. Brennan, who also a son of New Jersey, who when he was appointed to the United States Supreme Court compared himself to a mule that had been entered into the Kentucky Derby. Mr. Justice Brennan said that while he did not expect to distinguish himself in the competition, he did expect to profit from the association. So I want to thank the University Committee on Public Lectures at Princeton and the 
especially Dean Stan Allen for giving me the opportunity to be with you this evening. They've made me feel welcomed and at home. And while it is only 60 miles between Princeton and Manhattan, this pleasant village and borough represent a very different world. And uh, my, that's a nice ring right there, isn't it? See, you don't get those kind of rings in New York City. Uh, but it reminds me of a, of a joke that you may have heard about the four guys who were walking down the street. One was from New York City, one was from Saudi Arabia, and one was from Saudi Arabia, uh, Russia, North Korea, and New York City. The reporter rushes up. He says, could I get your opinion of the meat shortage? The person from Saudi Arabia looks at him quizzically and says, shortage? What's a shortage? The person from Russia says, meat? What's meat? The person from North Korea says, opinion? What's an opinion? The person from New York City asks quizzically, excuse me? What's excuse me? Uh, um, anyway. I do want to pay tribute tonight to the late Charles F. Cummings, whose memory by sheer coincidence is being honored tonight at a dinner in Essex County. A native of Mississippi, Charles arrived as a newcomer to Newark in 1963, and for more than 42 years, he made New Jersey his love and his life. He created the New Jersey Reference Room in the Newark Public Library, and he made it into the most comprehensive historical resource about any of the 50 states. His enthusiasm for Newark and New Jersey, his generosity with his time and his knowledge, and his devotion and dedication to his daily tasks were without parallel. Certainly, Charles Cummings was the finest public servant I have ever encountered, and with a, without a doubt, New Jersey was, by choice, his world. So, in 1914, when the young men of Europe were buttoning their uniforms and buckling their boots and moving toward that furnace that would become known as World War I, the German High Command expecting to be caught between Russia and France in a two-front war, implemented the famous Schlieffen Plan. This meticulously detailed document called for the Germans to concentrate initially um, in the West and to crush France before the Russian army could fully mobilize and move into East Prussia. Accordingly, Berlin, presented Belgium with what amounted to a 12-hour ultimatum. Allow the German army free passage through Belgium so that the Kaiser's soldiers might quickly get to France. In return, the Germans promised not to harm Belgium's people and to pay for any damages caused by their troops. If the Belgians refused to cooperate, they would have to face the consequences of a massive German assault. King Albert of Belgium, although hopelessly outnumbered and outclassed, refused the German demand. Belgium, he noted, is a nation, 
not a road. The same might be said of New Jersey, which is also wedged between two larger and more populous neighbors. New Jersey is a state, not a highway. The confusion is easy to understand, however. Although small, New Jersey is crossed and crisscrossed by so many multi-laned ribbons of concrete, Interstate 78, 80, 95, 280, 287, and 295, not to mention the Garden State Parkway, the Palisades Parkway, the Pulaski Skyway, the Lincoln Highway, and dozens of more local roads. So that so many Americans, as Dean Allen said, experience New Jersey mostly through the windows of a speeding automobile. Others travel along the nation's busiest passenger rail corridor. The impressions of passerby are often not positive. They see oil refineries and gas tanks along the turnpike and abandoned factories and toxic waste along the tracks. When I mention the title of this speech, If All the World Were New Jersey, to a friend, without missing a beat, he, he opined, it would stink. <laughs> and he is not alone in his view of New Jersey. Andy Warhol has said that the state bird of New Jersey is a mosquito. And Woody Allen has added that the curtain rises on a vast primitive wasteland, not unlike certain parts of New Jersey. These, of course, are only stereotypes. But as my late colleague, Eric McKittrick, used to say, stereotypes are true until proven false. And even then, they're probably true. Why is this? Why is the Garden State, often associated with pollution and contaminated swamps, with violent crime and drive-by shootings, and with political corruption and unmarked envelopes stuffed with cash. Let us consider each stereotype in turn. Pollution. New Jersey's association with foul odors and chemical industrial waste has some basis in truth, both in the current estimation that New Jersey has proportionally more hazardous sites than any other state and in the observation that the problem has a long and prominent history. Newark is a case in point. In the second half of the 19th century, it typically required less cleanup from churning factories than other cities did. And Newark allowed obnoxious enterprises to coexist in proximity to residential neighborhoods. Leather goods and tanning, paint and varnish manufacture, and brewing all caused enormous pollution problems. As a consequence of this industrial orientation, Newark did not even enforce the minimal environmental ordinances which were on its books. As early as 1883, the Newark Evening News complained in consequence of the widespread reputation for nuisance, nuisances of this city, its property is mainly of a poor and cheaply constructed class there being very few first-class dwellings within the city limits. Even the manufacturers will not build for themselves good houses, for before they are finished, it is more than probable that some vile nuisance will be located in the neighborhood, destroying the investment. 
nuisance was an understatement. Industries were poisoning New Jersey before the turn of the century. Sewers were inadequate. There were 10,000 cesspools in Newark alone in the 1880s, each one of them a generator of disease and the cause of so much sickness and death. In 1883, again, the Newark Daily Journal described how three residents had been overcome by carbolic acid fumes in a failed attempt to eliminate an intolerable stench. Their bodies were drawn to the surface with grappling irons. And I quote, the three ghastly corpses making up a picture which will never be forgotten by those who witnessed it. And the situation did not soon improve. Asked if she were troubled by an unpleasant aroma, one woman remarked in 1884, unpleasant? That don't begin to describe it. It is a perfect barrier against a breath of pure air. Another resident echoed, no matter how sultry the night might be, we are compelled to have all the windows closed. An investigator from the Newark News offered this firsthand account. The odor became stronger as each succeeding step brought this reporter nearer to the ditch. And when it was reached, the stench arising from the black and sluggish water was so overpowering that only a strict sense of duty prevented a hasty retreat. At the opening from which the sewer empties at the railroad crossing, the bloated carcasses of two large dogs were floating, upon which a cloud of flies was banqueting, the surrounding atmosphere being poisoned with a sickening stench. In 1883, when the Republican mayor was beaten for re-election by a former school teacher, he said, quote, he was glad to be defeated. It was no honor being mayor of Newark. Industrial pollution in the 20th century increased in complexity and size. During World War I, Newark's vaunted reputation for making almost everything brought to the city a variety of military contracts for hardware, munitions, paint, clothing, machine parts, and truck components, the production of all of which created toxic agents which found their way into the air or the ground. The problem continued into the modern era. One of the worst polluters in New Jersey was the Diamond Alkali Company, which made pesticides along the Passaic River from 1951 to 1969, as well as ingredients for the chemical defoliant, Agent Orange. During the Vietnam War, when the firm was operating 24 hours a day, Diamond Alkali and other companies released dioxin, a cancer-causing compound that is a byproduct of chemical processing into the Passaic River, putting it on the Environmental Protection Agency's list of the nation's most endangered waterways. Violent crime. As Dean Allen noticed, perhaps it is a coincidence, but the nation's most popular criminal, Tony Soprano, is based in New Jersey. No television viewer could miss the easily identifiable bridges, tunnels, highways, and roads that make up Tony's regular route toward his spacious home in a leafy green suburb. His office, such as, such as it is, is in a strip club, the Badaving. And the Badaving is based upon a real life, quote, titty bar called the Satin Dolls on Route 17 in Lodi. It is now one of New Jersey's more popular tourist attractions. And busloads of visitors every day 
plop down 30 or $40 per person to visit the places where Tony's syndicate does business. Meanwhile, the program has set a new standard for television violence. After all, and I quote, if your character needs to be whacked, he or she is going to get whacked. There's nothing you can do about it. End of quote. Why did HBO choose New Jersey as the focus of its mob violent television program? After all, New York is associated with Murder Incorporated and The Godfather. Chicago with Al Capone and the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Los Angeles with murderous gangs. Las Vegas with Bugsy Siegel. And Miami with powerful drug lords. Again, the stereotype has enough truth in it to make sense to viewers. After all, New Jersey was the scene of the famous Lindbergh kidnapping, long regarded as the crime of the century. And the Garden State's larger cities, Camden, Trenton, and Newark, have long been among America's leaders in terms of homicides and automobile thefts. In fact, at various times in the past few years, Camden and New York, Newark have each ranked as the most dangerous place in the United States. And let us not forget that Newark, in 1967, was the scene of one of the nation's most publicized and devastating race riots. Five days of violence gave the city a black eye which has yet to fully heal. All three television networks, there were three networks then, that's what everybody watched, flashed images of a city in flames to screens across the continent. Ultimately, after 27 people had been killed, after thousands of state police and National Guardsmen had been ordered into the city, and after dozens of fires had caused tens of millions of dollars in property damage and leveled blocks of stores, quiet returned to the streets. But middle-class whites decided that Newark was a place to avoid and escape. The once grand movie palaces went out of business and the downtown department stores, including Bamberger. Bamberger was the guy who founded and funded the Institute for Advanced Study here in Princeton. Uh, they all closed. In fact, Philip Ross, good, Goodbye Columbus, has a good part about getting out of Newark uh, in this period of time. And even now, despite the efforts of the new mayor, Cory Booker, Newark has yet to transform itself into even a place of moderate safety. Execution-style slayings, many this year, drive-by shootings, and residents too frightened to go outside after dark remain commonplace. As Tony Soprano himself remarked about New, New Jersey's largest city in a May episode, that, F curse, part of Newark, even the cops don't go there anymore. This from the boss of all bosses, um, and who, by the way, didn't get revenge on the bad guys who beat up the mobster. Political corruption. If politics is a business in the United States, it has long been a corrupt business in New Jersey. 
The tradition of malfeasance among elected officials, elected officials goes back many years and perhaps generations, but it became especially strong in 1917 when Frank, whose nickname was I Am the Law, Haig, was first elected mayor of Jersey City. His rule in Hudson County lasted for one-third of a century. And he was always, always much more powerful than the more famous Tammany Hall machine in Manhattan. Indeed, the Hague machine in Jersey City was the most powerful political organization in American history, beating out even the Pendergast machine in Kansas City and the Crump machine in Memphis. Anyway, and by the way, the way he did it was he controlled Hudson County, and since New Jersey was a swing state, by being able to throw 100,000 votes plus or minus, whichever way he wanted, he could move New Jersey into usually the Democratic column at his will. Um, under his administration, Jersey City was the home of the nation's biggest horse racing syndicate. Judges were able to draw two salaries at the same time. I understand that's still a little bit of a problem uh, here. Um, uh, Jersey City had the largest and most expensive, at least for its size, police force in America. And Frank Haig himself became rich while holding municipal office. He his salary was never more than $8,000 a year, and yet when he died, his estate was worth between four and eight million dollars, and in the meantime, he had lived very well, about spending about a half his time racing horses in Florida and other things. In more recent years, he finally lost power in 1949, uh, and politics in Jersey City did not get noticeably cleaner. In more recent years, the examples of political corruption in New Jersey are so numerous it's difficult to know even where to begin. Uh, Newark, again, might be typical of the problem. In 1970, the mayor of Newark, who had been the mayor during the riots, got in Hugh Adonisio, and other high city officials were convicted of extortion and income tax evasion. In 1996, the commissioner of the Newark Police Department was himself indicted in federal court for 37 counts of theft and fraud. Various members of the city council were taking payoffs. The chief aide to Mayor Sharp James resigned in disgrace because of similar charges. And more recently, the Newark Housing Authority, that means the place that builds homes for the very poor, spent so lavishly on its own headquarters that it triggered a federal audit and a major investigation into its financial dealings. No one was surprised. In fact, the long-term pattern of payoffs, double dealings, no-show jobs, and political connections may be the reason why New Jersey is in perhaps the worst fiscal shape of any state in the nation. But you know all this. In fact, probably you know the stereotypes better than I do. Indeed, why are we talking about New Jersey at all? After all, Princeton does not regard itself as part of the Garden State. And according to an alumnus who I talked to just this week, he said the close, closest people who live in Princeton get to acknowledging their residence here is when they write NJ on their return envelopes. 
Princeton is a national university, not a local one, and the institution would presumably be just as distinguished and as strong if it were in Vermont or Virginia. Nor do I have a dog in this fight. I don't live here or work here. So why concern ourselves with the Garden State? Um, I do want to say that while stereotypes about New Jersey may include an element of truth, they also convey a misleading impression. Consider that New Jersey has the highest per capita income of any state in the nation. Why would the richest persons in a capitalist society, where families with money obviously have options, choose to live in a place with such glaring problems? Obviously, they know something that passerby do not know, which is that New Jersey has lovely homes, quaint towns and villages, and beautiful open spaces. But my purpose tonight is not so much to condemn or to praise, but to suggest that New Jersey has other messages to offer beyond their prevailing perceptions about the Garden State. In the brief time remaining to me, let me make three points. First, New Jersey demographically is a microcosm of the United States. We might say, as New Jersey goes, so goes America. Second, New Jersey has done an unappreciated job of dealing responsibly with a whole series of problems which in fact affect virtually everyone in this country. And thirdly, despite past progress, New Jersey continues to face demanding difficulties. If the state moves with confidence and energy to face those challenges, it will assume an enviable and leading position in this nation and serve as a guide to other Americans. So how is New Jersey typical? First, in its density. As a small jurisdiction with a relatively large population, New Jersey is already about 95% urban. It's the first American state to reach about 1,000 persons per square mile. There are places in the world that are entirely agricultural that support densities as high as New Jersey. And yet this is not in, mostly an agricultural environment. While the United States as a whole is only about one-tenth or even one-fifteenth as dense as New Jersey, an increasing population in a circumscribed airspace is what we can expect in the decades to come. In fact, demographers suggest that the United States will add 150 million new people in the next half century. Where will those people live? What will become of our open spaces? In some sense, New Jersey has already been there and done that. Second, diversity. No one in this room needs to be reminded that the United States in the 21st century, more than ever, and probably more than any other nation on earth, is multicultural, multireligious, and multiracial. 
New Jersey reflects this growing diversity. In 2006, 15% of its people were born in another country, which is well above the national average. Hispanics and Asians are pouring into the state by the tens of thousands. In 2000, New Jersey already had the fourth largest population of Asians in the United States and the seventh largest number of Latinos. Think of the Peruvians, the Mexicans, the Dominicans, the Ecuadorians, the Portuguese, and Chinese who are giving this state its extraordinary diversity. Even, for instance, the borough, which was 90% white as late as 1980, is now about a quarter minority. And importantly, the minorities are moving away from the five northeastern counties that were the most urban. I'm thinking of, of Bergen and Essex and Hudson and Passaic and Union counties. That's where the concentration was in 1980, but not so much anymore. Third economic inequality. As economists have been reporting, I think sadly, for a generation, the gap between rich and poor is greater in the United States than in other advanced nations. And they are not evenly distributed across the American landscape. Indeed, this nation is riven by geographic apartheid, and few of its neighborhoods especially in the suburbs, are truly racially integrated. The typical pattern, understood even by young children, is that suburbs are rich and central cities are poor. Indeed, so common and so well understood is this so-called North American pattern that we almost don't need to explain ourselves when we say inner city problems, we, we get it. We don't have to go further than that but that the opposition between wealth and poverty in the shared space of a single metropolitan region has now become a classic theme of sociology. As Anna Quinlan, who I think lives in New Jersey, am I right? I think she does, um, has observed, the great divide between black and white yawns with the distance of ignorance and the silence of shame. New Jersey represents this pattern as well as any place in the nation. Camden's population, for example, has fallen by 40,000 people since World War II. And 44% of its residents in 2000 lived before, below the poverty line, the highest rate in the United States. Other New Jersey cities are also crumbling. Many of them are unsightly, inhospitable, and underutilized. Meanwhile, Four of the wealthiest, four of the 15 wealthiest counties in the United States, that's 3,000 counties, a little bit more, in the United States, of the 15 richest, four are in New Jersey. That would be Morris, Somerset, Hunterdon, and Bergen. And of the nation's congressional districts, Four of the seven wealthiest, four of the seven wealthiest congressional districts in the United States, that would be the 11th, 7th, 12th, and 15th, are in New Jersey. 
In this one state, the gap between rich and poor is phenomenal. And not even in the whole state. Think of tiny Essex County, which has much less than 150 square miles. You go from affluent and comfort, comfortable Metuchen and other places to the homeless of the Central Ward in Newark, all in the one county. Fifth, sprawl. The United States is more suburban and more balkanized than European and Asian nations. Its metropolitan regions sprawl over hundreds and sometimes thousands of square miles, dwarfing the geographical spread of even the largest agglomerations elsewhere. In essence, American cities have lower densities and occupy more space than communities in other nations. And I ask you just to think of the experience getting catching a train. Paris, Berlin, London, catch a train, any station, ride it for 30 minutes or 20 minutes, look out the window, what are you seeing? Open space and cows. Get on a train in Penn Station or Grand Central in New York, and in 20 minutes, you're not out of the Bronx yet. Um, but really, New York stretches 120 miles north and south and 120 miles east and west. Over 14,000 square miles, that's bigger than the Netherlands. And New York is really not the most sprawling of American cities. Anyway, New Jersey is the paradigm state, the poster child of this suburban reality. Essentially, the entire state is suburban to either New York City or of Philadelphia. Sixth, political balkanization is more important in the United States than in comparable nations because land use controls, public education, fire and police protection are local responsibilities in the American scheme of decentralized authority. In the, indeed, this is practically enshrined in the United States Constitution. Thus, when middle-class families move from a city to a suburb or suburb to suburb, they take with them needed tax revenue. In Europe, in Australia, in Japan, by contrast, outward movement of people has little impact on your taxes or your schools. New Jersey typifies this issue. There are more than 1,600 separate governments in this state. More than 550 of them are school districts. Put another way, France has one school district, Australia has six, Japan has 64, New Jersey has 550 some of them. Sixth home ownership. That is as American as, as apple pie. But about 66% of New Jersey families own their own homes. That almost exactly mirrors the American experience. That is my argument. New Jersey, in some ways, either is America or it is where we're going. But I now want to take this argument one step further. 
and suggest that this state is a kind of road to the future that New Jersey has already addressed, sometimes successfully, some of the big issues that stand before all Americans. Let me just mention a couple of them. Transportation. Need we be reminded in 2006 of our desperate dependence upon foreign oil, of the fact that this morning and tomorrow morning and yesterday morning we imported 11 million barrels of foreign oil not one of which we can pay for, all of which we borrow the money from China to pay for. That's the issue. And yet New Jersey has been at the forefront of transit construction and transit-oriented development. Other than neighboring New York City, which is in a class by itself, the New Jersey commuter rail network is bigger than anything but the Chicago Rapid Transit Authority. In terms of heavy rail lines or subways, New Jersey outranks every place but Chicago, Washington, Boston, San Francisco, and Philadelphia. And New Jersey has something that no other place on earth has in the same way. The perfect coming together of trains, planes, ships, and um, trains, planes, ships, trains, planes, ships, and trains, and, high, and cars. Um, how could you forget cars? Um, it's really the whole state, but it's especially a particular spot that you perhaps have all seen and many of you have noticed. When you're on the turnpike going south or north and you pass Liberty International Airport or the Newark International Airport. So when you go by that next time, and let's assume you're going south and on the right, you will see the planes. They're right beside you. And you're on the New Jersey turnpike. And to your immediate left is the main line of Amtrak. And just beyond that are the cranes of Port Newark. You know, one of the largest and most modern container ports in the world. All within a few hundred yards of each other. All in one place. All in New Jersey. The possibility of pulling it all together. And the improvements that are taking place in New Jersey these years, past years, are themselves important. The improvements on the commuter railroad lines are already being enjoyed by tens of thousands of passengers. Meanwhile, there's a new light rail link. I urge you to take it. It only costs a dollar. What you ought to do is take the ferry from Manhattan, get off at New Jersey, walk a block, take that little streetcar that's running by. It's white and cute. Cost you one dollar. Go to the end of the line. You go to Bayonne. Turn it back, go all the way back to Hoboken. It's a wonderful experience of your grandparents, but it's new modern light rail. It's part of that new New Jersey waterfront development where there used to be acres and acres of railroad tracks only 20 or 30 years ago. Or think of the new light rail in Newark connecting Pennsylvania and the Broad Street Station and how that's suddenly bringing life to what used to be for so long uh, a kind of relatively dead downtown. Secondly, affordable housing and educational equity. As I've noted, New, New Jersey has its fair share of rich and poor, probably more than its fair share. What makes the Garden State unusual, however, is that it has tried to do something about it. In 1975, for example, the New Jersey Supreme Court 
handed, handed down what has become known to historians as the Mount Laurel decision. And since then, it's been Mount Laurel II, Mount Laurel III. But essentially, the landmark case held that the revered zoning power of all those hundreds of New Jersey communities could not be used to completely zone out the poor, and that, in fact, every community ought to have a fair share of the very poor or even the middle class. An earlier ruling, all about the same time, says that the local fund using the local property tax for funding public education was unconstitutional. The problem has not been solved. Mount Laurel has not worked out as well as its adherents had hoped. There have been all sorts of compromises. You know, may know that Princeton can buy its way out of the deal. So, well, we need to split up 100 units of low-income housing, but if we spend $25,000 for each of those and give it to Camden or Newark or somewhere else, that's good enough. And in my smart-ass professor way, I remember thinking that was a terrible idea until I talked to a Newark developer who said, you may not like it, sort of implying sunny, but it's money that we wouldn't have had in Newark otherwise, and they actually were getting that money from Princeton at the time. And so it's just a, a warning that you never really know. It depends on where you sit. Um, but it should be noted that the Garden State has tried and is trying to deal with an issue that affects not just New Jersey, but every single state in the United States. And in terms of its educational experiences, um, it should be noted that New Jersey is almost always at or near the top in educational spending and in educational achievement. I realize that there are issues about transferring money to poorer districts and achievement in some of those poorer districts, but at least the issue has been engaged, which puts New Jersey up on some other places. Thirdly, attracting the creative class. Uh, some years ago, a professor at Pittsburgh named Professor Richard Florida uh, hypothesized that the health of metropolitan regions was in part the result of their ability to attract and retain what he called the creative class. Such persons, he said, were typically young. They were, you know, think Princeton students, smart, young, ambitious, daring in some ways, offbeat. I don't know how offbeat you are, but um, often gay, usually unmarried. Also, he, he suggested the need for immigrants. He said that those are the kind of people who are attracted to outdoor restaurants, not to fast food retailers, to independent stores rather than to big box retailers, to cultural institutions rather than to sports events, to funky neighborhoods rather than suburban subdivisions. New Jersey has lately been getting a good share of those people. Hoboken was perhaps the first cutting edge of it, escaping the Manhattan costs and just a subway stop away from midtown Manhattan. Uh, but think of the extraordinary variety of housing types in this state. Um, I think 
Well, let me just talk about some places that don't have a lot of VM. In Australia, which I think is one of the world's great places, um, as long as you want to live in a single-family house on a quarter of acre, you're going to be very happy. If for any reason that's not your ideal dwelling place, don't go there, because that's all they have, except in Sydney. The quarter-acre block, they call it. Or try Hong Kong, one of the world's most exciting cities. I hope you like apartments, high-rise apartments, because that's all they have, unless you have $30 million for a, a unit. Or if you go to Russia, I hope you like one of these eight-story, awful, look like cheap public housing projects that surround even small cities. Or suppose you want to go to Japan. The house you want to live in there is only one style, which is really two stories, about 15 or 20 feet by 40 feet. Not, nobody lives in high-rises in Japan. Nobody lives in farms. Nobody lives in a suburban house that you would think of suburban house. They all live there. But think how much diversity this little city has. High-rises on the Hudson River. More and more high-rises on that street. Attached row houses all up and down new. Or how about those old brownstones and row houses in all sorts of old New Jersey cities, which people are going to discover, and then you'll think back to 2006 and think, what could you have bought that for then? And what's it worth now? Or think of the wonderful suburban houses. For all the, all the criticism, they work for a lot of people. New Jersey has wonderful suburban houses. Or think of the farms that are still here, or the huge estates. New Jersey by itself has a greater variety of housing than whole country states. And so you can attract, in some ways, this creative class. And I note that the New Jersey Supreme Court has recently ordered the state legislature to grant gays the same marriage rights as heterosexual couples. Whatever you may or may not think about this issue on moral or religious grounds, I would submit that it makes for an excellent economic development strategy. In fact, I've often said that if I could live life over again, knowing then what I know now, and could afford to buy some apartment buildings, I would let gay people live there for free or for low rent. Because if you notice, those are the neighborhoods that take off for a whole variety of reasons that we can go into later. But people recognize that now. Safety. I've spoken of New Jersey's reputation for danger. But what is less well known is that the Garden State, taken as a whole, is actually unusually tranquil. Its homicide rate is 40% below the national average. And despite the fact, and this is one of the great puzzles, that understand that your automobile insurance rates are the highest in the United States. Is that still true? Well, for some reason, your automobile, your automobile death rate is unusually low, almost the lowest. I don't, first of all, I don't know why it is. Is it that New Jersey drivers are careful and courteous? Uh, but doesn't that strike you as odd that somehow the, the death rate on the New Jersey roads per person should be 
so much lower than the national average, but that insurance costs would be so much higher. I'll leave that for you and your Democratic representatives to figure out. But I'm not making those numbers up, by the way. That is, in fact, true. I, the number of fatalities on New Jersey highways every year runs about 700 and change. And that if it were proportionate to the rest of the United States, it would always be well over 1,000. Preservation of open space. Maybe it's because New Jersey is small and all of its land is precious. But this state has been concerning itself with protecting what's left of its wonderful countryside now for a generation. For example, the state's Highlands Water Protection and Planning Act, passed in 2004, limits development in order to save open space and natural resources. And New Jersey has an extraordinarily large amount of public parkland given its small size. Six local and regional planning. Almost no state has a better tradition of planning than New Jersey. In fact, it was here in a place called Llewellyn Park in West Orange in 1853 that the world's first picturesque suburb was developed in the eastern foothills of the Orange Mountains. Heavily wooded with rolling hills and clear streams, Llewellyn Park afforded a spectacular view of Manhattan and it introduced two features, the curvilinear road and a natural open space at the center that were unprecedented in modern residential experience. You could really also add the large front and rear yards. It has been labeled the, quote, most sensible real estate development in American history. It was for many years, for example, the home of Thomas A. Edison. And in the late 1920s, New Jersey pioneered in the community called Radburn, now in Fairlawn, the town of Fairlawn across the George Washington Bridge. And that also featured public open space, houses that faced the open space and not the street, and it introduced something that's become familiar to us all. The cul-de-sac essentially was invented here in New Jersey in Radburn. And here today you have residents still moving into town centers, these neo-traditional places sometimes called new urbanism. There's one in Washington and Mercer County. Um, and New Jersey, unlike New York or Connecticut, actually has a detailed land use plan for the state. So it's one up, at least on its regional neighborhoods. In conclusion, New Jersey is better, far better than the stereotypes. It has parks, beaches, forests, mountains, good schools, great universities. Indeed, it can represent the best rather than the worst of America. And it can move to first place among American states if it can come to terms with just a few of the challenges that are ahead. One is, I think, it has to control violent crime and political corruption. It may be low in crime and but nevertheless, there's no excuse for what's going on in Newark and Camden and other places. As the example of New York City demonstrates, 
it's possible to bring crime under control. This is just a rough example. The Bronx has four times as many people as Newark and fewer homicides. Well, the Bronx is not most people's idea of paradise. But New York has got, has crime rate has dropped so much, nobody even thinks about crime in New York City anymore. It's off the table. The only crime that really happens are guys killing their girlfriends, a few drug dealers killing each other. Stranger crime has almost gone. And when you have the very unusual stranger crime, which we've had a couple of, the young woman from New Jersey, who just a couple of months ago went to New York and then was murdered, what do they have? They have the guy in custody within about 24 hours because they have cameras everywhere. And they can put enormous police resources onto the occasional stranger crime and almost always solve it. Um, anyway, um, that's one issue. Crime and corruption need to end. And again, I'll cite New York as an example. You can't tell me in the last 50 years of a corrupt New York City administration because it hasn't happened. Now, New York City, now that doesn't mean there's no corruption, but can you imagine Mike Bloomberg or Giuliani or Koch or somebody taking money and bills? Uh, you know, it just doesn't, you know, there's occasional buildings, building inspector, but generally the city is now, and so you can clean things up if you really want to. Secondly, I think we can restore our inner cities to health. Even though New Jersey as a whole is doing well, it will never really lead America until it restores those troubled inner cities to health, and I think encourages greater density in some places and new amenities in those places. For example, this is going to be the great challenge of our nation in the 21st century. Where are we going to put those 150 million new people? If they're all going to be in residential suburbs, then open space in New Jersey, you can forget about it. Look at the way they're clear-cutting the forest north of Atlanta as Gwinnett and Cherokee and Jackson County fall victim to the bulldozer and the residential subdivision. We have to call a stop to this continuing move farther and farther out. New York, this region that we're part of, is going to have 2 million more people in the next 15 years and 4 million in the next 25 years. Where are they going to go? My suggestion is similar to that of the Regional Plan Association which is that we focus on development of dense, transit-accessible city centers. Newark, for example, has an infrastructure built for 500,000 people, and there are only 280,000 people there. It can be much more dense. Empty nesters, single parents, delayed marriage youngsters, there are many types of people who would find a vibrant urban core more emotionally and psychologically more satisfying than a rural or suburban one, but only if it's safe and stimulating. Here, the building of the New Jersey Performing Arts Center in Newark, I think, is an example of what an urban cultural amenity can do to turn around a city. Affordable housing is an issue that faces us all, and New Jersey is not easily going to get a handle on that because its economy is generally doing well, and people want to be here. I noticed that a couple of months ago, Governor Corzine announced that the state plans to build 100,000 houses and apartments over the, next, over the next 10 years for poor working class and middle class residents. That will not be enough. 
but it will be a start. And we must remember that a safe and successful society is one in which all citizens enjoy a decent home and a decent job and a secure retirement. Finally, New Jersey needs to do something about its over-reliance on the property tax. It is the state more reliant on property taxes than any other in the United States. And it must create government that enjoys the confidence and support of its citizens. Albert Einstein, perhaps Princeton's most famous citizen, once wrote, he said, I never think of the future. It comes soon enough. Well, he's certainly right about that one. But government officials and a concerned citizen must think about the future. We have not done so well with the bounty that this great nation was given by nature or the creator. Recall that George Clemenceau, the famous French leader, once remarked, quote, America is the only nation in history which miraculously has gone directly from barbarism to, de de to degeneration without the usual interval of civilization. Um, it does not have to be that way. If residents of New Jersey plan for the future, work together and build on a solid foundation, the Garden State may not be the Garden of Eden, but it can serve as a model for the world as a road to the future, not just a road to New York and Philadelphia. Indeed, if all the world were New Jersey, it would be a much better place. Thank you very much. And, and, I've been teaching in Newark for 15 years. Uh, it is the college center of New Jersey. Uh, it's the cultural center in many ways of New Jersey. Newark, New Jersey. It has the uh, largest undergraduate medical school in the country, the largest engineering school in the country, and it's got a population that has made enormous progress in the last 10 to 15 years. It, su it, it suffers many of the problems of an urban area and a poor urban area, uh, but there's a lot more going for it than you describe. And a lot of the problems you enumerated uh, also uh, are true, but the city is grappling with those and doing reasonably well. Second point I want to disagree with you on New Jersey was financially solvent until the Whitman administration. And it was during the Whitman administration, and, and, and the Whitman administration did not represent Newark or Camden or Trenton, but it was during the Whitman administration uh, with the tax cutting program and borrowing heavily from the pension system that has caused the problems that the state has faced since. 
So that's a very recent development, and it's not the result of poverty, it's the result of ambition. Uh, just a quick comment. By the way, I would like to associate myself with Newark. I mean, I really have, I mean, I really, my heart is with Newark. You, um, you rehabilitated yourself um, in the second part. <laughs> um, but, but, but let me just say this. I'm not the only person who's, in 1970, the newly elected mayor of Newark, Kenneth Gibson, the first black mayor of Newark, said, wherever urban America is going, Newark will get there first. Now, I really like that quote because it suggests a couple of things. It was assumed in 1970 that urban America was going to hell. No one, I think, would make that assumption today. But that Newark was in, in relatively worse shape in the 1970s. It was generally considered the worst of American cities at one point. Now, people do not usually put it in that category. The Performing Arts Center is one, the rise of Gateway, just the rebuilding of houses, partly because of Mount Laurel and other things. They've built a lot of new homes there. Detroit is probably now the poster child as the worst off American city. The second point you made about uh, politics in Trenton, uh, without getting into individual administrations, I do think that probably New Jersey has not been as well served by its politicians on balance as it should have been. Uh, and I'll, Christy, well, okay, I'm not, I don't really want to, I'm not an expert on that. But I would say, uh, and you could say the same thing about open spaces, whether uh, Governor Whitman was as good about it as, as her verbiage. Um, but my point was largely, rather than to pass judgment on that, to say that New Jersey was beginning to engage the issue rather sooner, let's say, than my hometown of Memphis, where they're not. Most of America is still, turn those farms into subdivisions, hey, it's a celebration, not a cause for concern. I think the general feeling in New Jersey now is, let's take a step back and think about what we're doing. We'll destroy the whole reason we came here in the first place. But I, I'm hoping that New Jersey, and especially Newark, will continue to be onward and upward. And, and new NJ Pack, which is the Performing Arts Center, um, that is a real challenge for economists. Because, you know, it's subsidized, I want to say, $40 per seat per night. So you're, you're, getting, you're, you're paying a lot for this. On the other hand, uh, it really has changed the image of the city of Newark. And people who have come there have felt that they're getting world-class entertainment and culture. And so, in a way, I'm, I'm in favor of that, even though an econ economist would say, not a good deal. Yes, sir. Um, I pretty much agree with just about everything you had to say, um, except for two issues on the revitalization of cities and the, the young people wanting to stay there, um, and also of the loss. I think New Jersey is actually suffering a loss of the progressive uh, um, educated class. Uh, on the cities, we see cities like Newark seeing revitalization. I'm from New Brunswick. I was born and raised in New Brunswick. And there's a lot of great things happening in New Brunswick, but it's all being done very cheaply. Um, New Brunswick's sprouting up what I call garbitecture everywhere. Um, all these multi-million dollar investments that a first year architecture student would fail um, in the design of because they're so bad. The second thing, um, I 
just came back from uh, the Pacific Northwest visiting a friend of mine out there. But I also spent some time out in California, maybe 10 years before that. And I go out there, I ride my bike, go throughout the neighborhoods that are there in the cities in San Francisco and whatever, um, in the cities of Seattle. Whatever. And I'm riding around, I talk to people, like, yeah, I'm getting lost, I'm from New Jersey. Everywhere I went, people said, yeah, I'm from New Jersey too. Then I got smart and I moved out here. And I really think that New Jersey is actually seeing a, 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 what I call a progressive brain drain. All the forward-thinking people who are trying to solve the problems of the future get frustrated in New Jersey. They leave, and they go out to places like California and the Pacific Northwest where, they, where there are more forward-thinking people like that. And I think New Jersey is starting to see that with its um, the pharmaceutical industry. New Jersey used to be the leader in pharmaceutical jobs. Not anymore. They're more of a mountain in California because I think California can attract those forward thinkers a little bit better now than uh, New Jersey. I wonder if you can comment on that. Well, first of the two points you made, I think one is uh, our city is really reviving. And I, again, that's whether the glass is empty, half empty or half full. I think across the United States now, uh, and not just in Boston or San Francisco or Chicago, you're seeing percolation going on in downtowns, even places like Houston and Denver that you would never have thought. Uh, you're beginning to see activity uh, in the inner city. And my editorial is that it's young people, your age and a little bit older, who are sick to death of shopping malls, and they're looking for any place that doesn't look like a shopping mall, and so uh, you've got a shot at it. So I think cities are generally reviving. And I, th and he, I would make this general comment. 50 years ago, people were moving away from cities, let's say New York, for example, because too dangerous, too dirty, too unpleasant to call home. Now people move out of New York City, but it's more often because they can't afford to stay. And I would make the same argument about New Jersey that I make of New York. If, in fact, you can't afford to live there in a capitalist society, that is telling you something, isn't it? It was the people bidding the price up. If people didn't want to live in New Jersey, the prices would collapse. But it turns out that people do want to live in New Jersey, which is why the prices on your houses are going up. The alternative would be Detroit or Dayton, where you couldn't get $50,000 for your house if you tried, um, because people don't want to move there. So we're always caught in this trap in cities. If we succeed and cities become attractive, the price is driven up. And anyway, that's one question. The second one is the creative class and where are they going. Um, it's hard to get. It's hard to know just who is the creative class after all. I mean, we don't know. And, Richard, Florida has been attacked often. Um, but it does seem that there has been a change in attitude toward many cities. And let's use Boston and San Francisco. Young people of talent and energy and ambition are willing to move to those places and give up the parking place, the swimming pool, and the tennis court they could get in suburban Dallas for less money than they're going to play because they want to kind of assist. They've already been driving since they were 16. The greatest thing in the world is not to get behind the wheel of a car um, and to go to McDonald's. It's a sex in the city world now. Outdoor restaurants. And I think outdoor restaurants are really important. You want to get something going, put some chairs on the street, and don't charge the restaurant for it. It's to the benefit of the city that people are sitting on the street because they're making it safe. Jane Jacobs' eyes on the street, that sort of 
idea. I don't know exactly. It's hard to ever know. But when you think of Hoboken, that's exactly who you think of. Young people. By the way, it's going to Williamsburg now uh, in Brooklyn or some other neighborhoods. That's what's happening. Where are they going? I don't know, but I do think it's important. And that decision by the Supreme Court in New Jersey, I do think is good economic development sense. Yes, ma'am. I live in Somerset County, which is the highest property tax in the nation. Um, so what are some of your ideas about how we can solve all this? Well, one of the things I didn't point out was that New Jersey does have some, some problems about how people somehow can drive up their pensions or, or have two or three pensions working at the same time. I mean, I do think government efficiency has got to be part of lowering the property tax. People have to feel that their taxes are being used wisely uh, and honestly. And that is an issue in New Jersey, partly growing out of history. But I do think that you can't be so dependent on property taxes, whether it's a mix of sales taxes and income taxes uh, or property taxes. New Jersey, I'm almost certain, and I want to say the Regional Plan Association is my source, one of them, is the most dependent in the United States on property taxes. Um, you know, it... it, uh, it uh, there are some people for whom, just take the middle class. Take you and me. Our houses represent most of what we're worth. If you were, and so if you pay taxes, in fact, many people, if they have borrowed money, the house is worth a lot more than they are because they really owe money on it, and yet you're paying tax on this house and you wish you had that much money. Whereas if you're really wealthy, the house represents only a small percentage of your total assets. And so if that is taxed, you're actually getting a break. So it's really a break for the wealthy. It's a, in that sense, a regressive tax. But it's hard, to, it's hard to know individually, but I do think that, that the problem of local taxes has to be solved. And I think education, I didn't spend much time on this because I realized that what's called the Abbott, Abbott rule in, in, in New Jersey, which is moving money, that's not the only issue. Clearly throwing money at the problem is not the only thing. That's one way to improve schools. But New Jersey, according to my understanding, does have, in a national competition, which not a very distinguished competition, I guess, um, but doesn't, isn't it very near the top? Do I remember that correctly? So in a sense, uh, you're doing something right, even though many of the schools aren't terrific. So I mean, I, every time I criticize, I do think that we have to say things like, if the rich live here, that tells us something good. If the schools are better than they are in other states, that tells us something. Um, that's probably not a Yes, sir. I'd like to uh, switch this back a bit to the classical suburban areas in New Jersey. And you talked about an alternative uh, vision for those that would have transit-oriented development, new urbanism coming in. And that seems to be a very rational and from my point of view, desirable course. But I wonder if you might comment on how sanguine you are that that can really happen. And let me just give you two data points, very local to Princeton, from Tuesday's election. Um, not far from here is West Windsor, where the awful parking lot is around the Princeton Junction train station. Um, an enormous turnout in West Windsor for a local council race on Tuesday. Uh, 500 absentee ballots compared to only 3,500 in the rest of the state combined to give you some measure of how strong the interest was. Uh, a candidate won there 
who is absolutely opposed to any housing near that train station, who campaigned on a platform, uh, we have 25,000 people in West Windsor, we don't need anyone else. It, and he won by 57-43 margin. Strong statement, probably the end for the transit development there. Hamilton did the same thing, uh, voted for a candidate that in the uh, analysis of this morning's Trenton Times will the end of the transit village there. So my concern is that the attitudes in the classical suburban sections of New Jersey are not what they need to be for these changes to take place. And yes, the housing values are incredibly high there right now, but I see a sustainability issue. Actually, the kind of things Jane, that Jane Jacobs talked about in the gray areas of the cities that were suburbs and within a generation had essentially turned into very problematic areas. So I wonder if you might talk about that aspect of it as opposed to the urban issues, hopeful as we might be about the cities. It seems to me there are big suburban problems in New Jersey. Well, first well. of all, uh, New Jersey does have this advantage. If gasoline were to go, hypothetically, to $20 a gallon next week, New Jersey would be better positioned to respond and take advantage of that than Texas would be uh, or uh, Oklahoma City or somewhere else that's spread out. Because so much of New Jersey is organized around rail lines or historic rail lines. And, and in some ways, um, successful village shopping centers. So there's something there to build on. Whereas it would be very hard to build a rapid transit system of any quality in Los Angeles or Houston. So at least on the ground, you're better off in, in New Jersey to build something for the future. The, the phenomenon you're talking about is the, obviously the not-in-my-backyard thing. It, it might be good to have higher densities so we can use much fuel and use public transit, but by golly, not anywhere near my house because that might bring the wrong kind of people around, you know, either blacks or gays or somebody because they're not going to be as expensive as ours. And I think, um, I think that's partly an educational issue that we have to convince people that we all don't want a house surrounded by grass. We all don't need it. We need to make space for our aging parents and for our unmarried children and all sorts of other people. It's a very hard sell, I'll grant you. It's very hard sell. People will fight the pavement for this and get out the vote and attend public meetings to fight development, whether in New York City or in Short Hills or farther out. It's just a, a sign of our times. And it's one reason we're going to have such a difficult time in the United States dealing with the energy question. Until we can somehow not use our automobile every time we get thirsty, uh, and need a quick fix, uh, we're going to be using too much gasoline. And at least if we could walk there, uh, we'd be better off, and also we'd be in better health uh, as well. Um, I often think, and I use this uh, example, that Americans like to think that we are the wealthiest people on earth. And we measure that economically by measuring our consumption, how much gasoline, how much money we spend, all these other sorts of things. And what I would like to suggest is you don't, necessarily have to consume as much in terms of dollars to live a better life. And if you would imagine, let's say, in Spain, where a person, well, let's say in the United States or in New Jersey, you wake up in the morning, you drive to your corporate office park, and then you drive to a shopping mall, and then you drive to the dentist, and then you drive to a grocery store, and then you drive to your two-car garage with an automatic thing, and you come in. 
you have consumed a lot and you are wealthy by world standards. If you're in Spain and you walk home for lunch, which is their custom to doing, and you have lunch and make love, or make love and have lunch, um, and then take a nap and then walk back to work, you're impoverished because you didn't spend any money. Uh, and that's the way we've somehow gotten it in our heads here, that if we somehow don't spin, 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 and drive, 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 whereas that the actual quality of life could be better if people lived at higher densities. After all, we're social animals. We want to see each other. Children hate to move to the suburbs. It's one of the biggest crocs going around is we move to the suburbs for the kids. We move to the suburbs for the parents. Ask any kid where they'd rather be. They want to be where there are other kids, lots of other kids, not where their moms have to take them everywhere to, you know, go to this basketball practice to that. Talk to people who grew up on the Lower East Side of New York, dirt poor. Their eyes start flashing when they talk about growing up. Oh, they didn't have anything. But, you know, Richie and did this and somebody did that and we ate over here and we went up because they were free and they ran outside and they did all these things and they had each other and they had a social, a vigorous social life at age seven that hardly any kids have now. They only have play dates. That's an editorial. I'll get off that, but that sort of thing. Yes? Here's a, here's a, here's a mic. To disagree with Einstein, looking okay. at the future, um, one of the great demographic shifts that is beginning to occur in this country is the large number of seniors who are going to arrive with the baby boomers. Isn't New Jersey really poorly positioned for that? And I think Governor Corzine recognizes that. You talk about revitalization of cities. I've just been in Phoenix. Boy, they're doing it. They're what? Boy, they're doing it. Okay. Why? Because of retire. You mean they, are they coming back to downtown or just they moving? They sure are. And they're building it up so that will happen. New Jersey, you point out, is flooded with wealthy people. We are arguably first or second. I believe it's Connecticut that's the highest. It depends capita. on which statistics, which yes. year. I understand yes. that. Uh, but um, when you look at these people, what holds you in New Jersey once you're no longer employed in the greater New York metropolitan area? We've got the highest property taxes in the nation. Our sales tax is already 7%. Our income tax at its peak is 8.5%. Uh, you don't need the good schools because you don't have any kids in school. There's got to be something. There's no great magnet city in this state. Why should these people stay in New Jersey? That's a problem for this state and a problem for Corzine. We also have the worst inheritance and estate taxes in the country. Anyway, I'll put, I think you put your finger on you know, and I think those are among the most valuable citizens going. Those people, they don't commit crimes. You're right. They don't have kids in school. They're not everything right. Um, and so I think, that's, I think the future, both for those 150 million new Americans and for, is in vibrant cities. It could be Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, it could be about these little bags floating around with candles in them. Something as stupid as that. But it's, it's revitalized Providence. It, sometimes it doesn't take much. Uh, I think Manhattan is the best place in the world to retire. Problem is, you, it's hard to afford, but people who can afford it do it. You don't have to wait for the van to take you to the shopping mall. You just walk outside and sit on a bench and watch the world go by. 
But you can do that in Jersey City. You can do it in Hoboken. You can do it in some places. We've got to get safety. We've got, people have got to be secure. Public transit has got to be good. I agree. Quality of life is those people we need to attract and treasure. You know, the reason why they often stay is because of their kids. They want to be close to grandchildren and other things. But we need more than that. Yes, ma'am. The glass is half full mentality of your of your talking makes us easier to make a lot easier for us to go to sleep tonight, but but I guess I'm I'm curious whether you see uh, the the progress as being something that is just inevitably going to be moving towards a a better state of New Jersey, or whether you see the need for some form of crisis to uh, lead to some form of greater intervention because the challenges that you lay out are actually huge challenges. And, and your answers to all of the questions, which I think are all valid, are also ones that are um, extremely optimistic. And, and so while I share your optimism, do you see, do you see this as a, do you see that, that we're actually naturally progressing to a state of betterment? Or do you see some sort of intervention being necessary in what form? Well, I, I, do th I am an optimist, and I do think things are getting, but if I were in charge of New Jersey, and I wouldn't be elected very often because I'd be against the automobile. I'd say, build no more roads. There are enough roads. Um, and improve public transit options. I mean, I do think that's, that's a very important. I, I also think it's important um, to, to believe in the future, to sort of th see that things are going to become better. Uh, I think they are. And I think crime is going to go down. Uh, I have been saying since 9-11, there will be no more terrorist attacks. States. Obviously, a lot of people agree with me because prices in Manhattan have been shooting up. Um, but, but the unanticipated result of terrorism, both in London and in New York, and civil libertarians would object to this, is all those cameras that are everywhere. And when you get to be my age, for example, in, in New York, you get, to, you get a, a special card to get on the subways and the buses. It's white. You get a statement every two months. It tells you every minute that you got on the subway or the bus, exactly what one you got on. That's the technology that's available. You go through an easy pass, it tells you exactly where you were, uh, and now you get cameras everywhere. So the young woman who was murdered from, I forget where she was from, they had her own camera. You know, as the guy was carrying her into a motel somewhere. Uh, they had the guy who killed the girl who was in, in, the, in the Lower East Side, who, by the way, 10 years ago, who could have imagined that some young woman by herself would have been dead drunk at a nightclub on the Lower East Side uh, 15 years ago. That would never have happened, but she was. And she left her, fa her friends, as did this one, voluntarily in the middle of the night, but walked out. The guy who was the bouncer killed her. How did they know? Because they had him on film getting in the car with him. They traced his cell phone to near where they found her body. So in a sense, I mean, that's a weird kind of optimism, I do admit. But, but it, it's beginning to suggest that the bad guys are not going to be able to get away with it much anymore. In other words, if you're paying attention, crime is going to go down. Car theft, and, and by the way, the only statistics you can really trust are car theft and homicide. Everything else is fungible. Uh, but you can't, you, don't, you can't get your insurance money and you can't deduct it off your income tax unless you've got that police report. So I don't care how many people are in line ahead of you at the desk sergeant, you're going to get the police report for that car theft. And if you're a dead person, 
chances are they can't say you're not dead or something else. So we tr historians trust those statistics, and they are getting better around the country. So that's one reason. I think crime is huge, huge, huge issue. Without safety, nothing else happens. Once people begin to believe that they're safe to go outside, it becomes like a, an epidemic in reverse. And everybody who goes outside makes it safer. That's one of the reasons why Manhattan got so safe. Now, a young woman goes out at 11 or 12 o'clock at night to get cigarettes. She just made it safe because she feels it's safe. She makes it safe for everybody else because she's there. It's eyes everywhere. And so it, it doesn't happen nearly as much as it used to. Um, I have an apartment at 82nd in Columbus. In 1972, there were four homicides in that building in six weeks. There are not four homicides on the whole west side now. You know, and it's way bigger than Newark, you know, in a, in a year practically. But that's the kind of thing. I found one building where eight people were killed in one building in one year, and the police didn't even notice it. I mean, how, how stupid do you have to be when eight women are killed in one building? But that was the world we lived in 35 years ago. It can change. It can change. In Newark and in Camden and these other cities, it can change. It doesn't have to be that way. And if once we get the crime out of the way, then the next challenge is education. Now, cities will never really revive as long as you feel that you cannot stay in the city and let your six-year-old daughter go to school there. I mean, I don't care how glitzy it gets. Once when I was president of the New York Historical Society, President Clinton came, and I was allowed to ask the question. I was president, and I, allowed, I was allowed to ask questions. In fact, I didn't think I'd be allowed to ask any because the Secret Service had said, he's got to leave to go somewhere, and if we give you the down signal, you'll just say, thank you very much, Mr. President. And, and they gave me that down signal, and I walked into the middle of the stage and said, thank you very much, Mr. President. He said, I thought you were going to ask me some questions. So I was ready with some questions. Anyway, I said, you know, when you became president, crime was considered a really big problem. Now, at least in New York, we're much more worried about the criminals than we are the people. This was back, you know, in Giuliani's time when, you know, he was getting in trouble because of uh, Amadou Diallo and others. And I said, and yet, schools were considered a problem, huge problem, and they still are. What's the difference between crime and education? His answer was that we know how to duplicate the crime success. You know, we ComStat and calling the precinct commanders in and throwing the statistics and the images of the precinct up and let's figure out exactly where every crime took place last year, this year. What are you doing about it? Are you anticipating problems? You know, and if you don't anticipate it and we look at those statistics two or three months and you hadn't improved them, then you need to get another line of work. We're going to have to get another precinct captain here because it's not working. So what's about schools? And he said, well, we know what makes a classroom effective. We know how to teach people. But somehow we have been unsuccessful in replicating the success in the classroom around the country. Now, I'm not sure that's even an answer, but the city and the state that figures out how to make schools better, like they did about crime 15 years ago, is a city and a state that's really going to move forward with rapidity. Now, New Jersey has as good a chance of doing that as any place because it's got highly educated people, well-funded public schools, and relatively small-scale public schools. So if somebody can turn it around, it could be a model for the whole nation.
It hasn't happened yet. But that's why I'm optimistic. Maybe something will happen. But the revival of cities so far has gone on without people being able to send their kids to public schools. And that's only half a revival. It's not a real revival. And that's why people leave New York City, because they can't afford the high prices of apartments and the private school tuition. And so they leave, reluctantly, to the suburbs. Still very different from the 1950s. We have maybe one more comment, and then we will. Yes? Sorry. Is there one way in which we could save money by somehow not giving so much to the politicians all the time? Well, um, Every way? listen, I can say that in New York State they're overpaid. Because it turns out that when things really get to be decided in New York State, all you need is the Democratic, the, the, the uh, leader of the Representative Assembly and the leader of the Senate and the governor, and nobody else matters. So what you're paying these other people for, I don't know. When push comes to shove. Can we re reward them to be a little more honest? I, I don't know, and, but, I under, but I think New Jersey has a series of problems. But the one that I noticed from the outside is the fact that the, but the public pensions get manipulated uh, just before they retire, and they seem to be able to collect more than one pension. So I'm all in favor of people having a de decent, secure pension and have it protected. But I'm not in favor of people having two or three pensions uh, and work in the system because I don't think the state can afford it. Yes, I'm all, very surprised at this because at this time we have such wonderful communication be, be, between people with all the new forms of communication, and yet we don't use it where we need it to control politicians and so forth. I'll stop well, of course, one of the real issues of our time is that all we are about sound bites now. No one really, and I'm not saying this is the right forum, but I mean a forum where people come together and sit there and talk about issues in a serious way over a period of a couple of hours and really dig deeply into issues. But now it's all about 20 seconds, and I can say that you hit your wife or ran over the dog or evaded military service or whatever. End of story. I just came from Tennessee, and that was at least as unpleasant as the, as the um, New Jersey campaign. Uh, but that's what it's come down to, just 20-second pieces of television advertising. It's all about money. We've discussed uh, bridge authorities and so forth uh, interminably over coffee in the morning, and nobody ever does anything about it. And that's a tremendous corruption. <laughs> I stopped talking at this point. Well, what we need to do, and New Jersey is, again, a perfect place for it. New Jersey has the best in terms of it has real local government, 1,600 of them. Uh, now, the problem is some things really can be dealt with in a room. This is the old New England town meeting. But some things really are not one sixteen hundredth of New Jersey. They're really bigger than that. And they begin to fight among themselves. Uh, and, the, and we've got to decide what issues are best dealt with at a higher level and which ones should we decide that we all have to do. And we have to believe that it's fair, that if we in our community, Princeton, have to provide for poor, a few poor people, then I think these are good citizens and we can do it. But we have to believe that every other community is going to be doing the same thing. The problem in America now is that the poor and the disenfranchised and the pathologies are too far away. And they're scary and we don't know them. The homeless guy on your corner, well, he's harmless. It's like Americans, they always say how terrible the public schools are, except the one down our street. 
that actually is not bad. And that tends to be the things, the things that we're familiar with, we can deal with. And we've gotten too far away. We've put too much separation in our lives. The automobile is, of course, a major cause of that. We don't know our neighbors. We don't know each other. We don't share. We don't share so many things anymore. We've lost We've lost our, our part of our social selves, and we're paying a price for it. And if we don't go outside and we don't see our neighbors, then the only information we do get is from television or the Internet. And that's, um, that's very incomplete. Thank you very, very much. Thank you.